0: So, the three fundamental questions that a space scientist asks themselves all the time and any bit of research that you can find, you can always link it back to one of these three questions is, where did we come from, where are we going, and are we alone? Ooh,
1: big questions here on this episode of the Real Leaders Podcast. Where the status quo is fake, NASA expands on purpose, and leaders keep it real. I'm your host, Kevin Edwards, and that was the voice of the former deputy chief technologist and now founder of Jim Adams World, the real Jim Adams. Enjoy. Here we go. Five, four, (laughs) three, two, and one. Folks, it's Jim Adams World, and we're just living in it. Welcome, everyone, to the Real Ears Podcast. I am your host, Kevin Edwards. Across the screen for me today, we have Jim Adams, the former Deputy Chief Technologist at NASA. Jim, thanks for being with us today.
0: Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it, Kevin. <laughs> Uh, Well, Jim, we are talking
1: before the show, uh, you like to answer a lot of questions, I like to ask a lot of questions. So the first question I have for you today, Jim, is uh, the former deputy chief technologist at NASA, could you explain what that role requires, your responsibilities, and what life and career experiences led up to this role?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, real shortly, the deputy chief technologist at NASA is actually the highest ranking technologist uh, at NASA. The chief technologist is somebody who rotates in from uh, university every two years or so. And, uh, and then they, they rely on the deputies to be sort of the glue that keeps everybody together and holds the corporate knowledge. So I had, um, I had come up through the ranks of NASA. Um, starting in project management and then working through planetary science and then ultimately uh, in technology to become the individual that advised the administration on technologies that were necessary to assure that NASA could do the missions that it would be challenged to, to do in the future to promote the use of technology in our missions and um, defend the funding basically. Um, and in the, in the process of doing that, you can bet I was uh, asked to speak a lot um, about technology at NASA and, and how we're using it. Um, let's see, to back up though, if we go all the way back to the 1970s, when I was getting a physics degree at a liberal arts college in Western Pennsylvania, I was playing with these things called microchips. They were just becoming really useful and um, and down the road in Ohio, there was this company that made cash registers. And so I put two and two together. I said, I, I kind of have fun making uh, circuits with microchips and these clunky old things where you push the button and the number pops up. Um, that's, they're going to become electronic someday. And so I said to myself, I want to build cash registers as a career. The mistake I made was... Um, that uh, the cash register company saw this trend coming too, and they were not hiring physics majors, they were hiring electrical engineers. Hmm. And so I did not get a job designing cash registers. I had to go with my second choice, which was building satellites um, for the private sector. Basically, I went to work for General Electric Company for 10 years as a radiation specialist, as physicists understand radiation. And in the process at General Electric, I built many, many satellites, um, assuring that they could withstand the rigors of space, was pulled into a program that GE has, it's a very famous program, um, Systems Engineering Development Program, and uh, became a systems engineer. Then along the way, NASA said to me, we were working on the International Space Station at the time. would you really, would you consider leaving GE and come working for us? And that's what I did. So in, oh, well, gosh, uh, 1989. So was that, 40 years ago? I left General Electric and, um, and went to work for NASA in Greenbelt, working on projects, uh, building satellites, uh, robotics, um, coordinating project management those sorts of things, and uh, built several missions that looked at the solar wind and the way it interacts with the magnetosphere of the Earth, Built uh, worked on some robotics that uh, were destined to go to the International Space Station, helped with things like trying to find faster and better ways of buying satellites instead of paying so much money for them, and advancing the state of the art of the technology. At some point, I then got a phone call from former astronaut Mary Cleve, who said to me, Jim, we could really use you in science. Hmm. And uh, I transferred from NASA Headquarters, or from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center to NASA Headquarters, where I actually hit the sweet spot of my career. And I think most people that you talk to, at least most people I talk to anyway, would say that the sweet spot of their career is really the second to last job before they uh, choose to retire. Hmm. And this was it for me. I was the deputy director of planetary science and controlled about a billion point three dollars a year um, for missions that ran the gamut. Rovers on Mars, the Juno probe, the, uh Jupiter, New Horizons probe, Out to Pluto, Messenger at Mercury, comets, asteroids, science research, you name it, we were doing it. And every two weeks there was some sort of headline about some breakthrough that NASA was um, finding associated with our solar system and helping to find our place in the solar system. Um, Along the way, I got another phone call, and this time um, it was from the deputy administrator, and I had turned this job down twice previously, and she said, Well, you really got to take this job and so I moved upstairs to become part of the ninth floor staff at NASA headquarters to um, help run the technology enterprise at NASA and um, and I loved it. it was a great career <clears throat> it was um, Uh, A great run, I still feel like I have productive years left in me, I'm only 62. I retired at 59, in large part because I had gotten to the point within NASA that it really didn't matter who won the 2016 election, and at this time we had no idea who was going to win the 2016 election, but it really didn't matter who, Um, NASA was going to undergo some changes at that level. And I wouldn't have been put out on the street, but I would have had to go find another job. And so they offered early retirement. I took it and I began doing um, public speaking and consulting. And that's how Jim Adams' world was born.
1: There you go. You know, it almost came full circle with the entrepreneurship, with the cash machines, yeah. building building mm-hmm. the chips. Um, and then now back to, you know, maybe you had the, uh, 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 something digging at you to, to become that entrepreneur you always set out to be. Uh, but, I mean, Jim, let's just take a look at this real quick. So the cash machine ships to then the GE uh, and you're building uh, satellites. Or, um, so how much space junk is in the atmosphere right now? Is there a lot uh, of space junk out there?
0: <laughs> there is a lot. And people worry about it quite a bit. Um, there are... Uh, Treaties and the United Nations has an organization that tries to regulate how much debris a nation can put into space. And then there are organizations that actually track those things all the way down to the size of a dime Um, so that when you're going to launch a spacecraft or you're going to move a spacecraft, you you know whether or not there's a probability of getting hit. Because it's all kind of in a low Earth... It's, a, it's in an orbit, a shell around the Earth um, that's, a, that's a few hundred miles up. Right? Right. The further out you go, the less debris there is, less likelihood of getting hit. But the, the likelihood of being hit in low Earth orbit is becoming very, very high. And it's the thing that the world should, should be concerned about. And we need to make sure that we, when we send missions into space, that we take care of the debris that it creates Mm. and there's two ways of doing that you can either launch it further out into space where it won't harm anything or you can make sure that it will re-enter and burn up on the way in Mm. and um, that's really the preferred method is just to send it back down to earth
1: Oh, interesting. Yeah. Cause I guess, I don't know. I'm, I guess I'm a little complacent when I say that's but like, why can't we just put all the trash into our space? It's so big, but it seems like, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like it's really difficult to get the trash outside of that, that, that atmosphere. It, or the, it you know,
0: is actually, that. and actually just getting it off the earth in the first place is really, um, pricey and technologically costly, costly.
1: So. so, so, Jim, you went from GE to the NASA and you work on the satellites, then to NASA, NASA planetary to Science. then to the headquarters. Yeah. So, and then you said the planetary was the sweet spot of your career. Um, do you uh i guess hmm, i've never heard the term sweet spot before oh um so yeah you know, we've, we've interviewed a lot of people that say you know i was in this this career in finance and then i kind of realized what am i really doing with my life and i align my core values with my career and, and now you know every day is just a purpose-filled day but you're saying you're for your career uh, you reached this, this sweet spot. What did you feel in that sweet spot? Can you describe really what that means? Uh, to our yeah.
0: audience? so since you hadn't actually heard the phrase before, I'll just say it comes from sports, doesn't it? It's like, what's the sweet spot of a golf club? It's the place where you just know you've mm. hit that ball exactly right. And it's going to go down the fairway without um, curving left or right. Or on a tennis racket, it's usually in, in the middle of the tennis racket, maybe just a little bit above the center. And and you know that you've got full control mm. over the ball and, and it's going to be a good shot. That's the way it felt when I was at NASA's planetary science um, division at NASA headquarters. We had decisions to make every day about what we were doing to help science and mankind to understand our place in the universe and we were bringing back data and exploring areas that had never been explored before finding water on mars and learning about the um the methane jets at uh, at jupiter i mean i'm sorry that at mars uh, and learning about the water jets at Enceladus and Europa, getting to Mercury, trying to understand why Mercury doesn't have any topsoil. I mean, it's just, just an incredible experience. And uh, those were times when I felt the impact of my decisions had, uh, was greatest uh, worldwide. Mm,
1: Okay. So would you say like that is what made it that sweet spot is like you, not only do you feel like you're in control, but you felt like you're making that impact? Absolutely. Wow. Okay. And then, so from all, from all these findings, uh, that you were able to make during your tenure, what's one that stands out to you that you think our audience would most enjoy?
0: Oh, well, (laughs) again, another bit of a long story, another bit of a long story when the, the theory is that when the solar system was formed, all of the heavier stuff ended up closer to the sun. And that's what we call um, terrestrial planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars. And then the lighter stuff got flung further and further out. And the lighter it is, the further out it goes. And um, as time went on, these things coalesced. They, um, they came together. And so there is theorized out in a region of space where nobody has ever been not even the voyagers are even a quarter of the way there yet this is a light year out on the very edge of the influence of the sun's gravity there's a region of space called the ord cloud and it's a cloud instead of a disk because the gravity is just barely holding these large ice balls in place every now and then Jupiter and the Sun line up on one of these things and their gravity gives it a little tug and it comes screaming in towards the Sun and that over hundred a thousand years or so as it comes comes in towards the Sun the surface of it begins to melt off and it makes a coma and a tail and that's what we call a comet so while I was at NASA headquarters, we had this mission called Stardust, and we, we flew it through the tail of an Oort cloud comet. There are other comets that come from other regions of the solar system as well, but the furthest out, the the most pristine, the least touched are these comets from the Oort clouds. And uh, we flew it through the tail of this Oort cloud comet, opened up a sample collection container, brought brought the dust and and water back to Earth and analyzed it. And you know, the scientists analyzing that material that we got from an Oort cloud comet from a region of space where no one has ever been, not even any human technology has ever been, in it we found amino acids. Mm. The building blocks of life Mm. are ubiquitous in our solar system. We, one of the things that we were doing is we were searching for signs of life. And that was kind of the hallmark of what we were doing in planetary science at the time, searching for signs of life. And that was huge. That was a really big deal that told us to keep looking. And now in 2020, NASA will fly another rover to Mars specifically to look for signs of life at Mars. We may even, uh, it's, it's even possible that there's life existing on Mars right now. Probably not green little green men, but more like microbes, but it's possible that there's life that exists on Mars in this very moment.
1: When people think of space, I mean, I think throughout the history of time, people have always asked the question, how did this start and are we alone? Mm -hmm. I'm sure you asked the same questions. Have you been able to come across an answer for either of those?
0: So the three fundamental questions that a space scientist asks themselves all the time, and any bit of research that you can find, you can always link it back to one of these three questions is, where did we come from? Where are we going? And are we alone? Mm -hmm. And they're really questions that probably don't have solid answers for a very long time, you know? Um, So for me, being able to contribute to the body of knowledge that will allow somebody in the future to definitively say, no, we're not alone. That was huge. That was inspiring. That was the reason I got out of bed every morning, the reason I went into work. And I don't know if I answered your question.
1: What well, was your question? No, no, you, no, you, well, you answered one of them. Are, are, okay. we, alo- are we alone? Uh, um, but, so you know, we don't know yet. Yeah. And, and yeah. where do we come from? I mean, you said you're on Operation Stardust. Aren't we all just Stardust in theory? Yeah. And, and, yeah. you know, can't, I, I mean, at least I was watching another interview with, with somebody, I don't know what their role was, or even if they were in NASA, but they were saying, you know, these powerful telescopes, we can look all the way back. And since if you look all the way back and then in light, like there's something like the speed of light that you can essentially see the big bang, because the farther you look back, the farther you look back in time. We'll um, could you maybe explain that to our audience and then um, and maybe what you've been able to uh, come across in your experiences?
0: So that's, a, that's actually a fundamental thing of astronomy, isn't it, that um, when you see starlight, if you look up in the sky at night and you see a twinkling star, that light was emitted millions of years ago hmm. and hurtled its way through space without running any, into anything until the photons from that light could deposit itself into your eye which is a humbling thought, if you think yeah. about it. That's where that photon's life ends, is when you see it. and um, But it, it started millions of years ago, because space is so vast. Well, over time, as those photons that were emitted from that star, or from any other objects, like, like a uh, supernova or something like that, um, as they hurtle through space, they shift, and we've been able to prove this. They they shift so that their wavelength is longer, and what that means is that um, you have to look harder and harder to see them. Like they get down into the infrared, and then and then there's some theory that even the the hydrogen that was emitted at the big bang has now they call it redshifted, down into radio waves into the uhf and so when when you look at the night sky and you're looking at light that was emitted you're looking at the universe as it was when that light was emitted millions billions of years ago so really you said it right a telescope is a time machine Mm. it lets us look back into our own history and try and understand how the universe was at the time that that light was emitted and there are ways that you can look at this star and say that light was emitted um, much further back in time than the light from this star without getting into too much of the details of spectroscopy Uh, you can line up Uh, certain wavelengths and you can you can say that okay well this one must be further away because it's more shifted than the than the other and that gives us a sense of just how vast our universe is there is a point at which um you can see back and and i think the um the time period, so I'm not an astrophysicist, but I think the time period is like 300 million years or so after the Big Bang is when the light actually started to occur, when things actually started to emit light. Mm-hmm. And so um, in, in theory, then you can't really see much beyond that because that's all we're looking at is light, but uh, I wouldn't be surprised if in the future astronomers come up with even um, more inspiring techniques to look even further back in time. But uh, one last thought is that when you hear somebody talk about a radio telescope, that's really what they're doing. They're looking at the light that was emitted long, long, long ago. At the beginning of time, it was light, but it's shifted over time so much that it's become radio waves and that's what we do with a radio telescope
1: fascinating so all those stars that i'm looking at in the sky are essential like galaxies that looked that way millions of years ago and that photon finally reached my eyeball and that's where it ends it's a really humbling Statistic. It's a really humbling thought to think about. Um, yeah, Jim, have your experiences at, at NASA uh, made you develop a, a more of a purpose in life? Uh, has it maybe shifted your perspective on life at all? And, and how so? Well, hmm.
0: um, a purpose. So I, I think, you know, all of us want to understand our relevance. Mm-hmm. And w- my experience at NASA has been one of those things that enabled me. To to see how we as a society, as a, as as a species, fit into the grander scheme of things, and it's tiny. Yeah, we are minuscule. Um, it also kind of pulls on your heartstrings, you know. For those of us that are searching for God, you know, it's it's one of those things where, you know, how could all of this have just simply evolved it, it it's so complex just mm-hmm. just the human anatomy is is so complex that you you begin to question those um theological and philosophical things in the meantime then you send another rover to mars and look for for water and methane and and that sort of thing but um but you know i think all of us want to be whole human beings and not simply just you know, a rover driver on Mars, we want to understand why we're here. What's our purpose? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think NASA really did do that for me. I think that's one of the reasons why NASA inspires so many people. It's mm-hmm. not just about the rockets taking off or the rovers landing on, on Mars or, <clears throat> or exploring, uh, you know, spacecraft exploring Jupiter. It's really, it, it inspires us to think much bigger than ourselves. And, uh, and we ask ourselves big questions then.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's something to think about, too. I mean, that's, yes, it's a very humbling, but, too, we're so minuscule in this galaxy. I think mm-hmm. I saw a photo of... Uh, it was uh, our galaxy with earth and our galaxy without earth and it's the exact same
2: <laughs> it,
1: it, it, it doesn't matter you know it doesn't yeah. matter um, but the the question that you proposed where are we going that's something i'd love to dive into right now and and that's when i think of where we're going i've been at a couple prestige conferences uh, around technology in uh, ai and ai avatars in uh, space robotics um, how, how have you uh, seen AI uh, be immersed into NASA? Um, and what are some of the things that you either ex- are excited about or maybe a little afraid of?
0: So um, I don't fear AI, by the okay. way. You know, I know there's a there's a lot of folks out there that that are concerned that AIs are going to take over the world and um, humans will uh, lose their um, position at the top of the food chain you know that sort of thing I, I don't worry about that I, I honestly think that um, we're inventing these technologies the technologies will serve us and, um, and we will uh, adapt to the ways those technologies serve us I mean if you take a If you take, for example, um, driverless cars, we're a ways away from being able to just hop in a car and say, take me to the grocery store. Mm. But we'll get there someday. And uh, as time moves forward, not only will the technology evolve, but so will we. We'll adapt to the way that we use technology. Used to be... um, uh, homes didn't have central heating and thermostats if you needed the house to be warmer you put another log on the fire and now uh, we've adapted we we bumped the thermostat up a few degrees right mm. so it I, I think that we will adapt to the utilization of technology where are we going um, I think that's a much bigger question I I think that again we are moving forward at an exponential pace that's never been um, seen before in terms of our technology development, but also our ability to accommodate it. Mm. And I think at the, at, the, at the forefront of all of this is really living better lives. And um, so we're looking backwards now, and we're saying, hmm, what have we done to this planet? What are we doing to those people next door who don't have enough food to eat? You know, And I, I think at the center of it all is our heart. I mm-hmm. think at some point we will begin to realize that it isn't about bottom lines. It isn't about mm-hmm. just sheer technology. It's about the evolution of the human heart so that we begin to understand that we're all in this together.
1: Yeah, definitely, and and that's something that um, Jimmy, for, uh, I was just saying, that's something that um, you know I've been figuring out from a lot of these different guests we've had on the show. We we interview a lot of different people. In a, an impact space, uh, for-profit mm-hmm. companies or profit, not-for-profit companies that are trying to find a bigger meaning, a bigger purpose, and uh, measure the triple bottom line—people, planet, and profit—versus just
0: absolutely just profit. Yeah.
1: So that is an interesting take. But before, and I want to come back to this, Jim. But I, I want to stick on tech really quick because I find this <laughs> really interesting. So you say you're not scared of AI, mm, and so I'm I, not. I, I'm I'm thinking AI from what I saw. Uh, okay, how about this, Jim? So ni- you said 1979, you're graduating college um, and you're going to insert a chip into a cash register. Yeah. Now we're just paying with our mobile phones.
0: Yeah, well, there isn't even a, such a thing as a cash register now, right? Yes.
1: Yeah. Unless you go to uh, Tito's Taco Shop just down the block from me. Yeah, right. And they're cash right. only. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, shout out to Tito Taco Shop. But uh, uh, let's think about video games. Probably 1979 was like Pong was a was a big game back then, and I think this is the argument a lot of people have is you know you look at the evolution of that from. a a game that is hitting a ball back and forth to now something like Fortnite uh, where people are playing simultaneously with amazing graphics around the world and some are in virtual reality around the world connecting simultaneously. So you look at the rate and I think Moore's Law is like technology doubles every 18 months or halves its cost every 18 months. And then you think about how long humans have been here, let's say like 7,000 years since the first cave painting or or art that we can find in the ground. And then you think about how long the earth has been formed, like four point something billion years. And even if that rate of acceleration goes down to like one one thousandth in a thousand years, when you and I are both gone... It's going to be, you know, quadrupled, uh, quintupled. You know, it's going, it's going to be out of this world, mm-hmm. crazy. So AI doesn't scare me for when, you, when you and I will be around. But is it possible that th- these conscient beings? I guess if that's what AI actually is. Technically, we don't really have AI right now, since it's machine learning. Would you say? But could you say that? maybe where are we going is in the form of a cyborg or in a form of, uh, maybe not even existing or AI is taking over. Is, is that a possibility?
0: Uh, maybe, I mean, <laughs> my mother has a, uh, has a, uh, a pacemaker and two titanium knees mm. and that we think that is commonplace, right? Mm-hmm. um, I think, you know, at some point we're, we're going to start seeing prosthetics that uh, that help people with limb problems that are going to be almost as good as what you're born with. Mm. Um, will AI ever replace our minds? You know, I, I don't think so, but we will probably get assistance. Um, I think, you know, someday we'll figure out how to make – um, Alexa work for us better, <laughs> you know? Um, but I, but I think that that's, uh, that is the evolution and it is not just the evolution of the tech view. I mean, we, we tend to fear things we don't understand, but we're going to evolve too as that technology evolves. And yeah, we'll be challenged to evolve fast. Mm. Will we ever hit a plateau? Will the tech ever level out for a while? Right. You know, it might, might, it might actually be a nice period, uh, for, for people to rest in, you know, but, uh, but I think that, uh, we have the ability to affect a world in amazing ways, uh, even now compared to the 1970s when I was messing around with a microchip, you know, and, right. um, you know, I mean, like, like you pointed out today, we don't even have cash cash registers anymore. And it's just, uh, Unless you go to Tito's, so <laughs> exactly. um, I think, yeah, I, I I think we're I think we're going to be okay. the The thing, though, is the thing that does worry me is, um, yeah, you know, I'm. We we talk about sustainability, and we talk about, and that's the thing that I love about sustainable brands. By the way, is um, is that the triple bottom line and no longer just simply uh, making a profit for profit's sake and and using up the resources that we have here on earth and then throwing away the rest and you know not paying attention to things like carbon footprint and recycling and reusing and repurposing i think that's a mistake i don't think it's a i don't think it's a problem for the earth I think the Earth will survive. It's a question of whether or not humanity will survive. What will we become as these sorts of things emerge? And, and I think this trend towards values-based entrepreneurism and, and corporate um, objectives mm. is, is just the tip of the iceberg of seeing the real humanity come out in people
1: yeah yeah definitely uh it's it's fascinating how people are using strategically using their business model to take on a specific problem mm-hmm. and make a profit from it
0: like yeah. that, i don't begrudge it's, it's, anybody a profit but if that's all they live for then they're only living half a life
1: right okay okay well let's um what about this so i uh, last topic last question on technology i want to get to this so if if you know i like to make play devil's advocate with these tech guys at these conferences who are you know developing these ais and say you know tech is great it's not stopping. That horse has already left the barn. It's not stopping anytime soon. But what questions are you asking or having, uh, or conversations are you having with the people making this technology? Because right now, you know, I think there was a commercial right that um, that came out. It might have been Google, and it basically is just saying, you know, we're now more connected than ever, but we're more disconnected than ever. Uh, where mm-hmm. kids are on their phones all the time. Right. We're less social beings now. And what type of effect is that going to have on the mind of these people growing up, Uh, myself growing up? Um, as well as what's what is that going going to do for humanity lack of diversity in culture now you're seeing people and cultures uh, forming to be the same and have the same ideals uh, in this impact space I, now I think social enterprises are great but it's also there's been a lot of social enterprise influencing cultures to start their own businesses when you know for years and generations these people have been in poverty and just used to you know uh, being self-sufficient um, so businesses are coming into these areas and taking away their jobs and 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 the little uh, profit that they can make on the side to sustain their families. So there's all these different you know conversations and existential questions uh, that we've been asking. And even uh, uh, you go back in history, people have always been against technology. You, know, you look at the Luddites and, and them coming yeah. into an industrial revolution and and you know t- tearing down uh, manufacturing plants. Mm-hmm. It, it is a little scary. So I guess the question for you is, um, is, is does tech have to be managed in a certain t- way? And w- from your experiences at NASA, how, what were some of the conversations that you all were having when you were developing these um, you know, crazy technologies?
0: Yeah, so that's an interesting question. So, uh, you know, the tech itself has no good or bad. It's really how do the people that that uh, make uh, that adopt the tech um, use it, and and so I I feel pretty strongly that um, that we will get to a point where, um, well, yeah, where where our values have to take preeminence over simply pushing the edge of the technology. And, you know, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and bring up a hot topic, you know, guns. Mm. I think we've, we've advanced the state of the art of guns to the point that we don't really need most of us anymore. Mm. And, and I think uh, at some point, our values have to come into play and we have to say, okay, we have to find a solution to this problem. The technology has gone too far, and um, and you know, or at least the, uh, the technology coupled with our sense of how to use them has gone too far. And I so I think that uh, at some point we're going to have that same conversation about automobiles and about, uh, laptop computers and, you know, um, RFID and, you know, chipping your hands. I mean, it's going to be, uh, along the way we are going to have to find a way to infuse values into the way we develop our tech or the way we use the tech that we develop, I should say. And we need to know what those values are. I think people need to start searching and thinking. And that's, again, I keep coming back to the sustainable brands thing, because that um, I did the Sustainable Brands Madrid in, uh, just a few weeks ago, and it was an eye-opening experience to see these for-profit companies stand up and say, no, we've we've got a reason for being in business, and it's beyond simply making money. And, um, and I think that that's, that's a trend that <clears throat> we should applaud mm. and we should see move forward um, into all aspects of our lives.
1: Jim, I like that. And, and when you said uh, it's not good or bad, it, it, something, a light bulb came off in my, in my head um, because I guess tech is amoral, not immoral. It's neither good or bad. And just like you mentioned with the uh, companies that sustainable brands, capitalism is amoral. Um yeah. And so how, and I guess maybe to add to your point, maybe it's just the values, even with guns, though, guns are amoral. It's a technology. It's how do we use these, uh, um, te- how do we use this technology in the, in the right way? How do we use capitalism the right way? And and there's, there's a lot of, uh, I guess, questions going around right now. And that's in our space about how, how do we get, Humanity to shift towards this perspective to take on things like climate change and that's a good transition to the next question uh, Yeah, next topic is is climate change, you know in in NASA um, You know, have you ever come across some conclusive evidence? That man-made or man-made produced carbon dioxide is uh, Contributing to climate change.
0: Oh, yeah, absolutely. (laughs) there's no doubt it's conclusive (laughs) it's conclusive and you know you can take all of the sharpies you want and modify the data it isn't going to change the truth the fact is that our existence on earth the waste that we produce has had an effect on earth's climate and will continue to have an effect on the earth's climate Mm. does the earth go through cycles of climate change on its own? Yes, it does. And so now we're talking about adding or subtracting to that natural cycle. But, mm. but but the but, you know, you can't exist and not have an impact on something. And that's what's happening with humanity right now. We've gotten to eight billion people or so, and we are now to the point where we're dominating or the actions that we take dominate the environment that we live in the mm. so question is what are we going to do about it you know if humanity suddenly just ceased to exist the earth would recover right the earth the earth will be fine it's a question of will we continue to exist mm. and um, well, there are some that would point out that there have been five major mass extinctions over the existence of life um, on on earth we've never been around for any of them but we may be um looking at uh at the sixth coming down the train tracks at us and so i I think going into um business going into um, technology and thinking through your impact on the uh on the environment and what it means for the existence of humanity is extremely important.
1: So maybe we can say that if you turn a uh, you know turn a blind eye to uh, climate change, that could be immoral, and therefore maybe we should be focusing on our actions and values in our own lives to. Um, use kind of, you know, our, our roles and responsibility to take on these existential problems for humanity. I mean, if you have five extinctions um, and, and we're not aware of uh, kind of our actions, and then like you said, every everything you do, you can't live on this earth and not have an impact, um, right. ha- how, how do we shift our mindsets to take on these problems? And that's an interesting question. I think that's a fair question too. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so for this climate change, uh, is this something that's going to be reversible? I mean, I, I interviewed an impact investor and he was telling me, he's like, you know, I had a theory that capital markets could take this on. And here I am, this is, you know, 15 years ago before this was even a thing. Now mm-hmm. we have more money than ever going into... Um, the, the impact on society or environmental change, and yet we have more problems now than ever. Yeah. So Do you think, Jim? I don't know if you're uh, big into the data or research at all. I, I'm not either. Uh, but do you think this is something that we can turn around?
0: So, uh, just to qualify, I'm not an expert, but I'm speaking okay. as a yeah. as a private citizen. <clears throat> I think that we all must take it on, mm. and and That's the, the challenge to each of us isn't necessarily to stop global warming, to stop climate change, or, or any of the 17 United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, right? The, the, the challenge to each of us is to begin to make a difference like right now in what you're doing, right? Stop buying so many water bottles right? Um, start, start buying brands that, that are sustainable, start making decisions to walk rather than hop in your car and drive a quarter mile to the Dunkin' Donuts. There's, there's all kinds of things that we can do to begin to change our lifestyles like right now. And the problem that we have is because we're so smart, because we have this ability to see forward so well, we see the whole picture, and it's daunting. We see the, the the landscape rolling out in front of us, and the world is warming up, and the ice caps are melting, and the Amazon's on fire, and and you're like, you know, what is my one little thing going to do? Well, it's a start. Mm. And it's a it's a change in attitude, it's a change in heart, and it sets an example for the people that come behind you.
1: Uh, a lot of the arguments might be let's let's put more cash flow and money into mm. these impact investments. Um, uh, I guess an argument would be. For space exploration, you know, why are we exploring Mars when we have a planet to take care of? And like my theory is like, hey, okay, well, space exploration is what we need because we need to understand where we came from, how we do things. But what's your take on this? I mean, a lot of money is going like Virgin uh, Galactic just launched. Uh, <clears throat> we're going to Mars mm-hmm. with uh, SpaceX. Uh, w- what's your theory on uh, kind of how capital markets uh, and investments should be um, directed towards to take on the six
0: Yeah. So. Um, I'm not a finance person, right? And I and I know that um, the globally the the space market um, this would have been in the early 2000s was at about 300 billion dollars a year. NASA's piece of that was just teeny tiny. Um, the biggest piece it, taking away the Department of Defense was really commercial communications. Mm. But um, what I do know is that whenever humanity aspires to do a big thing, whether it's build a wall to keep invading nations out, and I'm talking about you know in China, or or if it's to send humans to the moon and return them safely that those are big, hairy goals. They they require hundreds of thousands of people all working together. It takes time, and it takes resources. And along the way, there will always be someone who says, it's not worth it, right? Right. And there will be those that will cast doubt. But here's what happens when somebody decides that they're going to help us explore another planet. We develop a radar. Well, cool. Okay, so we develop a specialized kind of radar that operates on very low electricity and and very weak signals. And you know that the Jet Propulsion Lab, working with the um, FEMA, Federal and uh, Emergency Management Agency, mm. developed a suitcase using that radar technology that can detect a human heartbeat under 10 meters of rubble. Wow. Yeah. Fascinating. Space exploration is littered with these kinds of stories. We call them spin-offs. Mm-hmm. We were trying to figure out how to assure that the astronauts would get the right nutrients as they were in space. And we isolated a, um, a protein, I think it was. Hmm. That that protein, that process then got licensed by a company that now includes it as a nutrient in about half of the world's supply of baby formula. Hmm. <laughs> so around the world, children are being fed better because we were investing in space exploration. The original mammography machines were... Uh, updated based upon detectors that that we invented for the Hubble Space Telescope so that they could get better uh diagnosis for women earlier and better diagnosis for women with breast cancer um there's thousands of these kinds of stories that have been documented and I'm sure hundreds of thousands that have not been mm-hmm. and so ask me is it worth investing a tiny amount of the nation's budget in space exploration. Absolutely. Without a doubt. I like
1: that spinoffs. There's so many things that have been invented through access and yeah. so your listeners, that.
0: there's, that's actually a website. You can go to spinoff.nasa.gov. Okay. And, um, and you know, since 1976, every year they've published a magazine of, of those that were highlighted for the year. Um, yeah
1: so this has been an interesting conversation uh we've covered a lot and we've thought we've thought big in this conversation Mm -hmm. uh bigger than i I thought we were going to go into which is great Um, this is the last like because i have you here jim question i really want you to answer Uh, five mass extinctions and correct me if i'm wrong but all of those have come from meteors is that right
0: uh no No, all of them. Um, Some geologic change. I I for I don't really know. Um, I couldn't rattle them all off. But the but the one, the last one, that ended the um, Cretaceous period, or at the Cretaceous period, that ended the lives of the dinosaurs was a meteor. asteroid. There there were four before that, then. Yeah. Oh, jeez. Okay. And and these mass extinctions, by the way, they they didn't involve human beings because we hadn't evolved at that point, right? Um, but but you can go you can actually look up the the five mass extinctions and it'll tell you what happened and or what we believe happened and what form of life ceased to exist uh, as a result. But but the last one was the one that we all know about the dinosaurs with,
1: with the dinosaurs. Okay.
0: Yeah.
1: Well, I was just going to ask you because. Uh, there's like a point in time in history where like there's a gap of like 7,000 years or 9,000 years where you have a um, record of mankind and then everything just drops off. And then 9,000 years later just pops up and these civilizations in the Middle East uh, seem to come in form around and, and, and a lot of them are aligned with the stars uh, mm-hmm. from what I've uh, learned is like we're traveling through this asteroid belt do we have any s- like self-defense against these asteroids and is it, are there anything coming in I mean
0: yeah.
1: I feel like this is more of a likely scenario of, of us uh, of a civilization ending
0: so um, under the previous presidential administration there was a grand challenge issued um, to NASA but globally and that challenge was to find all the asteroids that could harm human populations and know what to do about it. Hmm. And so NASA's continuing to work on that. In fact, the NASA has um, has a planetary defense officer. It's cool t- cool job title, right? Oh, yeah. um, but we've cataloged all of the um, as best we can tell all of the um, planet killing asteroids that are out there. So, you know, an asteroid that's so big could you know just totally annihilate the earth most of those we found and how do we know that is because we keep looking we keep looking we keep looking and the discovery rate just keeps tapering off and keeps tapering off and so we know that we're statistically hitting the end of the of the curve on those mm. but there are still a hundred thousand or so statistically speaking, asteroids out there, potentially hazardous asteroids out there that could take out a city. And so the thing that um, took me to South Africa for the first time, and I've been back 13 times since, was this idea of a partnership between the University of Hawaii and the South African Astronomical Observatory to telescopes, identical, but specific uh, uh, opposite each other, but specifically designed to hunt for asteroids that would be inbound to give us two, three months of advanced warning. And um, and that's just now, even though I retired three years ago, it's just now starting to mature and the telescopes are being built. and. Um, so while um, South Africa is in daylight, the the telescope in Hawaii will be at nighttime and it'll be looking and then South Africa will look and then Hawaii. And then I understand that there may be others that pop up around the world and it'll all go into this large database that is looking for inbound objects. I say asteroids, but it could be comets too, right? And so um, so that's, the first step is to know what's out there and and there is a real effort not just nasa but it's international globally looking for these objects to make sure that we know what's coming right now whenever one enters the atmosphere even today it's a surprise to us we don't have the advanced warning that we would really need like like you would if there was a hurricane coming or a tornado there's there is not that advanced warning um for uh uh, for inbound potentially hazardous objects so um so we're working on that the united nations step two has set up an organization to get nations together to figure out what to do in the event that we find one that's inbound I can tell you at the moment there's we don't there isn't anything (laughs) uh, that you have to worry about you know Um, people will say oh you know there's this asteroid is coming around in you know in 30 years and there's a possibility it might hit the earth well yeah there's always a possibility anything might hit the earth but the bottom line is that um, those things as you get closer and closer and you refine your observation more and more, you begin to understand that it, they're a near miss A near miss is to find it like a million miles. Mm-hmm. So, um, there have been a few close calls. There has, there, there have been large asteroids that came inside the orbit of the moon, even further inside the orbit of the geostationary spacecrafts that communicate with us. So, um, that's at 22,000 miles in the, Closest one I remember was at 17,000 miles, um, but that's uh, that's the rare exception, and uh, it's not a thing that I would uh, lose any sleep over. But there are people looking. It's a long-winded answer. <laughs> no, it's, that's great. Well,
1: I think what I got from that is it's nice to hear that this is a global effort. <laughs> like a global combined effort. You're talking about South Africa and, and countries. I think everyone likes to see countries working together, um, you know, around the problem that affects us all. I think that's why, you know, people enjoy the Olympics Mm -hmm. so much. They're able to see everyone together and maybe competing for a goal, but you all on the same stage. Um, NASA uses people from all over the world, um, especially for our space mission. When we went to the moon, we had, uh, scientists from, I think it was Germany and and many other countries. Um, what can business owners take from, you know, learn from NASA uh, in terms of, uh, diversity and inclusion?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Number one, I I wouldn't necessarily say that uh, when we were doing Apollo and Gemini that we were the epitome of diversity and inclusion. We've learned, NASA's learned the benefit of diversity and inclusion over the years as well. I mean, you just have to go back to the movie Hidden Figures if you've seen that. If you haven't, I would encourage you to go see it. It's about computers, people that people who were called computers that calculated the trajectories for the original astronauts and they there were several black women in virginia that um computed the first trajectory and um and had not gotten their due you know yeah. for their contribution um, to human spaceflight. so um so i would say that um, that's been a journey for NASA as well. But we, kn- we recognize now that if you cut out a segment of the population, if you don't include women in the diversity of your team, you're only tapping into half the innovation that's available to you. Right. People think differently. The, diff- the thing about diversity is not to check a box, but it's to assure that we get the perspective and the ideas that are fresh, that are going to keep you out in front and keep you pushing the edge.
1: Definitely. Well, Jim, it's, it's been a pleasure having you on today. I'm really excited. You're able to come on. Um, again, you know, it's, it's your world. We'll just live it in it. And, you know, uh, I'm just really, really fortunate that we are able to talk because, you know, most of my conversations, Jim, are, are, I wouldn't say just with business owners, they're fascinating business owners, but rarely do we get to ever have someone from NASA with your experience. So for that, we thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, It's been my pleasure too.
1: We've covered a lot today. We've covered your career path, uh, starting with the chips uh, for the cash machines to GE to NASA Planetary to NASA uh, satellites and, uh, and NASA, NASA headquarters as well um, in the sweet spot of your career. Uh, we then covered a little bit about climate change, technology. Uh, Jim's not scared of it. I might be, though. Um, and, and, and then a little bit on to uh, diversity and inclusion to follow that up, Jim, you've, you've had an incredible life. Um, from all these experiences, what would you say your definition of a real leader is?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, first off, I'll say I, I have been, it's been a privilege to have had the job that I had to serve the people of the United States in the way that I did. Um, it uh and it's you know, i've had an incredible life it's not over yet i'm still i'm still kicking <laughs> but um in terms of leadership um you know i look at real leaders as <clears throat> individuals that can inspire the larger uh body of people and so there you know you can define the human um, existence or you, you can define people in a bell curve and there will as we talked about before there will always be that like 10-15% at the back end of the bell curve that we're are gonna say "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you can't do it not gonna work not not participating it's not for me no thank you and then there's gonna be this slice you and I and the others now, up at the top of the high end of the bell curve that are going to say, let's go this way. We can make this happen. Let's try and find a way to make it happen.
2: Mm.
0: Um, this is important. Come along. Let's go do this. Right. Um, and and the, the thing that's important in a leader is the individual that can then turn and say to the people in the middle. That 80% of the crowd, 70, 80% of the crowd, let's go do this. And they all say, yeah, he's right, let's go, right? And so um, I think that's what I see in a real leader, is somebody that can inspire people to, to follow a vision, to be persistent, and, and to uh, put their heart into it.
1: Jim, I agree with what you said. And just to restate what you said earlier, you can't live on this planet without having an impact. And that's for sure. For Jim Adams, I'm Kevin Edwards, asking you to go out there, find a way to make it happen. And always, people, keep it real. Thanks, Jim.
0: Thank you.